Well, if you have your Bibles, we are going to continue. We're jumping right back into Matthew chapter 20. So Matthew 20, we're going to be reading verses 29 through 34. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, right in front of you on the pew back, there's there are the, these hardback black Bibles, and you can pick that up and turn to page 825. That's where the, the passage will start, and it'll, it'll go on to the next page. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at home, you are welcome to take that. That, that is a, a, we would love for you to take that and, and have a copy of God's Word um, that, that you can understand and, and read. And we'll, we'll read the verses in, in just a minute. But this specific passage, I just want to, to read the, the late J.C. Ryle, talking about this passage, says this. He says, The Lord Jesus is not only a mighty Savior, but merciful, kind, and gracious to a degree that our minds cannot conceive. The Lord Jesus is not only a mighty Savior, but merciful, kind, and gracious to a degree that our minds cannot conceive. That's what Ryle says. You see, it's one thing to have power and authority. And certainly Jesus throughout this gospel has exercised power that is unmatched. He has authority that is unparalleled. We've seen that over and over. He has power and authority. But in the person of Jesus, what makes his power and authority so distinct is the way he uses it. Because over and over and over, his power and authority are exercised for those in need. That's how he uses all power and authority for for the poor and the downcast, for the weak and helpless, for those who know they need mercy. And what we have seen and what we will see again today is that Jesus is not only a mighty Savior, but he's merciful to a degree that our minds cannot conceive. And as we read this passage, we will encounter this is our Savior, Believer, this is our hope. The mercy of Christ is our hope. If Christ ceases to be merciful, kind, and gracious to, to a degree that our minds cannot conceive, if, if we can in our minds fathom a, a, a limit of mercy, and, and that's Christ's mercy, if it reaches a limit that we can conceive of, if that's the case, we are not saved or kept. You see, in this healing, in the healing of these two blind men that we're going to see, that we're going to read about, Those of us who've been born again to to a living hope, to a sure hope, those those of us who have found in Christ a salvation that comes not through works done by us, but a salvation that is according to his mercy, to every Christian here, in this story, we're going to see our own story. In this story, we, we see the gospel in microcosm. Because in this brief interaction we see an illustration of the reality of the bigger picture. Because in this brief story, we we see a a broader illustration, a picture of the entirety of the life and ministry of Jesus. Surely in the person of Christ, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Surely in the person and work of Jesus, those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And these two blind men, While actual sufferers whose ailments are miraculously remedied, these two men serve as a picture to all of us. And in this simple miracle story, we have before us a picture which ought to be deeply interesting to the soul of every Christian. Because we're going to recognize similarities between us and these two blind beggars. And as we do so, we ought to find 
reason for hope, hope in the merciful son of David because he is merciful beyond measure. And so let's look at this passage together. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 29. I'm going to read through the end of chapter 20, which is verse 34. So Matthew writes this. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. Let's, let's pray. Let's pray before we look at this passage. Father, this morning as we look at this, your word, I pray that your word would encourage us. I pray that as we look at Christ, as we look at our merciful Savior in the pages of, of this gospel account, I pray that you'd help us to see our great high priest, this Lord Jesus Christ, who's passed through the heavens. As we look to him, let us hold fast our confession that, that he is our hope, our anchor, the anchor for our souls. And we hold fast to our confession because we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are who knows what it's like to, to be tempted to forsake our confession, what, it, what it's like to be tempted to disobey and to sin against others, to, to neglect the need in front of him, who knows what it's like to be tempted yet was without sin. And so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace where he is seated at the right hand of the Father ever interceding for us. And let us approach him knowing that from him we will receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, there's, there's three points here that we're going to work through as we, as we work through this passage. The, the, the three points that we're going to see in verse 29, the first point, we're going to just see the setting. Verse 29 lays out a, a setting that we'll, we'll look at. Then secondly, in verses 30 through 31, we'll, we'll focus on the cry for mercy from, from these two men. We'll, we'll focus on the, their cry to the Son of David. And then finally, in verses 32 through 34, we'll see the response. We'll see Jesus hearing this cry for mercy, and we'll see his response. So that's how we'll work through. If you're taking notes, those are going to be our three points to help you hopefully follow along. But before we look at verse 29, the setting, I, I want to take a few moments and remind you, and really, if I'm honest, remind myself of where we are in Matthew's gospel. Because as we come to this point at the end of chapter 20, we're, we're approaching the home stretch. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, geographically speaking, Matthew 21 marks the end. Because over these past several chapters, we, we've seen this movement. Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem, to the holy city. That's where he's going. And, and here, at the end of chapter 20, is the last stop before next week, Lord willing, verse chapter 21, the, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. That's, we've reached the end. He's gotten to Jerusalem. And so here's the last stop. 
But in this gospel, we've seen over and over, Jesus is telling his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem. They're not, they're not oblivious to the, the GPS, to where Siri is sending them. Right? They are going to Jerusalem. That's been the final destination. All the way back in chapter 16, and then in chapter 17, and then in chapter 20, Jesus makes what are known as these three passion predictions. And in all three predictions, he says, we must go to Jerusalem. We must go to Jerusalem. We are going to Jerusalem. And he tells them, not only are they going there, but he says, this is what has to happen. This is what must happen. We're going there, and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be handed over to evil men. I am going to die on a cross. I'm going to suffer there. We're going there, and I'm going to die. He says that all three times. And he also, though they often miss it in the first two, he also says, but then three days later, I'm going to be raised from the dead. He says that all through passion predictions, but they, they don't get it because in their mind, a, a Messiah who's going to be crucified, they, they don't have a box for that. They don't understand that. So if you remember the very, very first one in Matthew 16, when Jesus says this is what's going to happen, Peter says, no way, not you. You're not going to be crucified. Never. At which point Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of men. You don't know this plan, Peter. Just trust me. This is what's going to happen. And so he's, this whole gospel has been trending towards Jerusalem. And Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows the cross awaits him. He is, he is going there knowing the surety of his suffering. In fact, the last time we were in the Gospel of Matthew, Pastor Hobson talked about James's, James and John's mother who says, let my son sit with you at your right hand. And, and Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Now, I'm, I'm going to sit on a throne, but, but suffering is going to come before. In fact, severe suffering is going to come before. You don't know what you're asking. They don't get it. They, they want the glory without the cross. And Jesus ends that conversation, Matthew 20, with, with what is probably one of the most mar- remarkable statements he ever made, which is when he says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Namely, to give his life as a ransom, as payment for many. And the reason that scene is so remarkable is that we've seen in the life and ministry of Jesus throughout this gospel, his ministry, it's, it's consists of, of many words, of lots of teaching, but also great works, miracles. And his power and authority has been on display throughout his ministry so that demons have no power over him, death has no power over him, disease has no power over him, nature has no power over him. Throughout this gospel, Matthew has, throughout this gospel, Matthew has recorded Jesus as conquering all of these rebel forces. And despite that... Despite all of that authority, despite the ability to do anything that he wants, he says, I came to serve specifically by laying down my life for others, for my enemies, for those who would betray me. Right? His authority is going to be exercised in service. His might is matched by his mercy. And it's remarkable because that's not how we tend to think about the exercise of power and authority. It's not how the disciples expected the Messiah to operate. It's not how we expect our King, our our Lord, to function. Yet that is the mission of the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Son of David. Which is why here in Matthew 20, in this, this last healing episode of Matthew's Gospel, the last time that Jesus shows his healing power before going to Jerusalem, it's not surprising that we find him interacting with two blind men who cry for mercy and receive just that. 
So look there at verse 29, the setting. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. So this is a geographical setting. They, they're going out of Jericho. The last time we, we got a geographic note was, was at the beginning of chapter 19 when Matthew says that they went away from Galilee and they entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And so Jesus' life and ministry, the majority, vast majority, in Matthew's gospel specifically, the vast majority of his ministry is in Galilee, Galilee this region up north of Jerusalem. And he's done his healing. He made a few ventures over the sea, and, and then he came back. The majority was in Galilee, but in Matthew, 9, in Matthew 19, verse 1, they leave Judea, and they're going south. And Matthew says they go beyond the Jordan. And so you, you can look at your maps in the back. Don't get lost there, but, but make a note. You can go back. Basically, what Matthew is telling us is that Jesus takes the, the normal route that the Jews would take down from Galilee to Jerusalem, and that is they cross the Jordan so as to avoid Samaria, and then they cross back over the Jordan, and the city they hit when you cross back over the Jordan, if you're going to Jerusalem, is Jericho. Jericho is at the base of this mountain. It was a well-known, this is the New Testament city, which is not far from the Old Testament Jericho. Remember, the Israelites crossed the Jordan, and then they march around the city. That's Old Testament Jericho. This, this city is not far from that setting, but it is the last city before you climb up the mountains to go to Jerusalem, the holy city. No, no, Jesus didn't always bypass Samaria, but it appears that on this route, he does. They, they cross the Jordan, they're going to go south, then they cross the Jordan back, and they go through Jericho. And Matthew, verse 20, or Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 says, they went out of Jericho, so they're on their way to Jerusalem, leaving the city of Jericho. They're getting ready to climb the mountains to Jerusalem. And so that's the setting. They're, they're leaving Jericho. And look at verse 30. As Jesus and his followers, as they're leaving Jericho, they're followed by a great crowd, which is the case now with Jesus. Now there are probably a lot of travelers on the road making their way with Jesus to Jerusalem. But on the way, verse 30, Matthew inserts this, this behold, look, surprise. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, Matthew says there's two blind men. If you're familiar with, with Luke and Mark, they both record this very instance, this very interaction. In fact, Mark gives us the name of one of the blind men, and his name is Bartimaeus. And so when Matthew says there are two blind men, we have no reason to doubt his account. Matthew and, or, or Mark and Luke, for whatever reason, they focus on one man. In fact, Mark probably gives the name of Bartimaeus because Bartimaeus was probably the leader in the early church. He, wants, he focuses on him because the, the, the readers probably would have been familiar with who he was, and this is his story. Regardless, Matthew says there are two men, and we can believe there are two men. The, the problem would be if, if Luke or Mark said there was only one man. They don't say that. They focus on one man. They don't say there wasn't two. And so Matthew records this. There's two men on the roadside. They're sitting by the roadside. It wouldn't have been uncommon for blind men. In our culture today, blind, blindness is, is, a, is an ailment and it creates much suffering. But, but we live in a culture and society, society that, that, that made, makes lots of accommodations for the blind. That wasn't the case then. The blind were worthless in this culture. Cast out, no good. Couldn't function, they couldn't work, they couldn't do anything. They were good for nothing. And so they find themselves on the side of the road outside of Jericho. 
They're not situated on this road by accident. This was the road that the Jews would have taken to, to go to Jerusalem when the feast of the Passover was approaching. So there probably been, a lot of travelers were going through Jericho on their way to Jerusalem. And so that's where these two men are. And there are probably many more beggars on the roadside. But, but it's these two that Matthew tells us are sitting there and they hear something. They hear that Jesus was passing by. Now, these men don't see Jesus coming. They don't see the crowds. Their eyes don't tell them, wait, wait, there's someone important coming, but they hear that Jesus is coming. Maybe it was the the crowd. Maybe maybe there were people running ahead shouting, he's coming, the teacher is coming. And they hear that Jesus is coming near. When they hear that Jesus is passing by, they begin crying out. They're not asking for money. They're not asking for food. They cry out to the Son of David for mercy. Notice their cry. Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. And and that title, Son of David, and, and crying out to the Son of David, it's evident not only that they had heard that Jesus was passing by, but it's also evident that they had heard of the ministry of Jesus. That they had heard of the miraculous healings. Maybe they heard of the other blind men who were healed in Mark or Matthew chapter 9. Maybe they'd heard of some of his other miracles. Regardless, they had heard of this man. And they knew that Jesus was near and him passing by was their chance. And so they began crying for mercy to the son of David. They don't say, hey, Jesus. They don't say, Rabbi, have mercy on us. They cry out, son of David, have mercy on us. And that's, that's significant. In fact, Matthew chapter 9, we we looked at this, I I checked, it was nine months ago. But in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus encounters two blind men there. Separate occasion, it's not the same interaction. But two blind men there, guess what they refer to Jesus as when they see him and ask for him to heal? They refer to him as the son of David. And the point that that Matthew is making in chapter 9 is the same point he's making here in chapter 20, which is that... This title is fitting for Jesus. He is the promised son of David. He is the Messiah. That's the point Matthew's making in recording this title that they refer to Jesus as. And he wants to make this point because the hope of the blind receiving their sight was directly tied to the appearing of the Messiah. It was prophesied that the promised king of Israel, that the son of David, that the Christ, would come and heal God's people. Specifically, he would give the blind back their sight. And Matthew wants you to know, this is the promised Messiah. And if you remember, later in Matthew, in chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison. He sends his messenger to say, hey, go ask my cousin, Jesus, if he's the promised one, or if we should wait for another. Do you remember that, Matthew 11? Do you remember what Jesus said? He didn't say, hey, just, just tell him, just trust me, just tell him, just, just be patient. No, he says, go tell John what you see and what you hear. Namely, the blind are receiving their sight, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf, deaf hear. Go tell John that's happening, and he'll get the answer to his question. Because the appearing of the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, the one who was the son of David, when he appeared to work salvation for all of God's people, these things would happen. And Matthew is wanting us to know these two blind men are crying out to the son of David because they know and they believe that he is the promised one who can heal them. And so they say, grant us mercy. You can heal the blind because we believe you're the Messiah. 
I mean, faith is implicit, I think, in this cry for mercy. And in Matthew's gospel, these blind men, in their cries for mercy to the son of David, serve as an indictment against the religious leaders who have continuously opposed Jesus. And what's fascinating is that these blind men who cannot physically see, in the most important sense, can actually see before they can see. These two men who cannot see clearly see what others continually miss, that Jesus is the Christ. And so they cry out, have mercy on us, Messiah, son of David. And so they're crying on the side of the road. They're crying for mercy. But, but notice those around. Notice how they respond. Notice the crowds. The crowds, they don't see, do they? Verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be quiet, be silent. Stop yelling. Stop it. Be quiet. Who do you think you are? How dare you cry out to the teacher? Do you know? He's going to Jerusalem. He's not going to stop for you, especially you two. Be quiet. You're wasting your voice. Save your voice for, for those who come after him. Maybe they'll give you some, some food. They rebuke him. Now, again, I, I'm just speculating. We don't know what exactly the crowd is rebuking them, what the crowd's thinking as they're rebuking them, but they tell him to be quiet. And at the end of the day, they're telling him to be quiet because they don't think Jesus cares. Regardless of, of, of why, the crowd is saying, be quiet. They, they, they've concluded, Jesus doesn't care about you. So be quiet. So they, they, they rebuke these two men crying out on the roadside. They attempted to silence them. But notice how these blind men respond. Verse 31 continues. But they cried out all the more. All the more they cried out. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Do you notice that phrase, all the more? The NIV says the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder. That, that's the phrase, all the louder. I thought this is, a, this is not a good illustration, but, but think about that embarrassingly loud toddler who's upset in a public setting, and, and you're embarrassed, whether it's not getting ice cream or, or having to share a toy, and you're like, this is so embarrassing. And you're like, be quiet, be quiet, whatever you be quiet. Maybe some of you have experienced that in a church service. Right? What, what's worse than a, a loud child in a church service? But look, by the way, we don't care here if your children are loud. We love children in here. But, but you know, as a parent, you, you, you're overwhelmed. You're like, be quiet, be quiet. And every attempt to get them to be quiet seems to be like, get louder. Get louder and louder. That, that's somewhat of what happens here. These blind men say, oh, you're telling us to be quiet. I'll take that challenge. And I'm going to amp it up. I'm going to turn the volume up. And so they shout all the louder despite the opposition from the crowd, these two men persist in their cries for mercy because these men know their great need and they know the one passing by. And knowing the son of David was passing by, they refused to be silent and they cried out all the more, which leads to the, the next section, ver, the, the third point, verses 32 through 34, we see the response of Jesus. We've seen this scene play out before throughout this gospel. We know Jesus by now. We know why he came. We know that he's able and willing to show mercy, which is why we're not surprised. Verse 32, in stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? In stopping, Jesus stops the procession. There's a large crowd. that This wasn't a, an immediate, easy train to stop, but he stops. And he calls out these two blind men. 
in the midst of excitement surrounding the journey to, to Jerusalem, in the midst of the, the crowd, the noise, the chaos, Jesus stops and turns his attention to these two blind men who are crying out to the Son of David for mercy. And it's a curious question, isn't it? What, what do you want me to do for you? He asked the same question to the mother of James and John earlier in chapter 20. What do you want? Now, our understanding of the person of Jesus, he knows what they want. He knows what they, they want. And in fact, we don't even have to go to, to his omniscience to, to be able to recognize what these men want. Everyone on that road, everyone in that crowd knows what these men want. But Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And it's not because he doesn't know. The cause of distress was clear, but Jesus' question is designed to strengthen their faith. He's encouraging them to express it forthrightly for everyone to hear. Why are you here? Like the woman, the bleeding woman who touches him, and he says, who touched me? Of course he knows. But it, it requires faith for her to step up and say, it was me. So he says, what do you want me to do for you? He's forcing these two men to, to reflect on what do you really want? And they say, verse 33, Lord, permit, let, grant, give that our eyes would be opened. Let our eyes be opened, Lord. That's their response. They don't waver. They ask what they most desire. And in asking, they're affirming their trust in the gracious mercy of God and his power to heal. I mean, the wording is clear. Let our eyes be opened. Let. They know Jesus is able. And so they ask to continue to rely on the merciful son of David. Their, their attitude, in fact, doesn't change from the beginning to the end of this encounter. From their cry to their request, they recognize Jesus as the merciful one who's able to him. Let our eyes be opened, they say. Verse 34. We know how Jesus is going to respond, don't we? And Jesus, in pity, he touched their eyes. And immediately, they recovered their sight and they followed him. Jesus was, was moved with compassion. He had pity on them. He, he showed them mercy. He, his heart was moved for them. And he touched their eyes. He didn't have to. He could have he said, your faith has healed you. And not touch them, but, but there's this personal intimacy where, where Matthew records Jesus touching their eyes and immediately they recover their sight and they follow him. And once again, Jesus illustrates the nature of his messianic ministry. Once again, he shows what his kingdom is about, the nature of this kingdom that he had come to establish. The crowd had been ready to silence these men, to keep them out of the way, but Jesus was too compassionate for such treatment of people in need. That's not how he's going to operate in his kingdom. That's not how he, as the king, is going to function and deal with those who are in need. He stops and he heals these two blind beggars. And immediately they recover their sight and they follow him. If you notice, Jesus doesn't say, go and don't tell anyone. Remember earlier in his gospel, he'd say that. Early on, right, Jerusalem was still a long way away. There's no, there's no, there's no issue now. That this messianic secret is out in the open. He is, he is on his way. So there's no, there's no secrecy. The time has come. The king is on, the, on the, the, the entry to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he knows he won't be crowned. He knows he's going to be crucified. But he also knows this is the sovereign will of his father. 
And so as he's approaching Jerusalem, this last stop in Jericho, he stops and shows mercy. The nearness of his own decisive suffering doesn't get in the way of his service to these two blind beggars. And the conclusion of the healing is that these two men recovered their sight and followed him. They, they got up off the road with new eyes to see. And Matthew says that they followed the son of David, which, which I take to be a way of Matthew telling us that these two blind men became his disciples. They followed him. They got up and they followed him. And they followed him into Jerusalem to find this, this king who had just shown them great mercy was, was going to, in a matter of days, be hanging on a cross. But that's the nature of the kingdom and the king of mercy. And so as we seek to apply this passage, I mean, this, this is just a really simple passage to apply. And, and I think there's, there's two main applications to the one main point. And so the main point is, we, as, we, as we leave this interaction, the issue at hand here in these verses is this. Either you're like the two blind men at the end of the encounter with Christ, or you're like the two blind men at the outset of the encounter in Christ, with Christ. That, that's the only two categories of people here today listening to me talk. You're, you're either like the blind men before they cried out for mercy, or like the blind men after they had cried out and received healing mercy. And, and so if, if you, like the two blind men, if, if you have come to Christ for mercy, if you've cried out to Christ, you've looked to him, you've trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, if, if your hope is in him and his death on the cross for you and his resurrection and his future return, if your hope is in Christ, if you've been united to him by faith, if you've been united to him in a death like his, in a resurrection like his, if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit who's, who's caused you to, to be raised from the dead, for those of you here today that this is true of, the point of this passage is to encourage you. Will you not be encouraged with the heart of your merciful Savior? His mercy is beyond measure. The reality is this, if you're here and you're a Christian, at one time, you were in a state of helplessness. You were just as helpless as these blind beggars on the side of the road, unable to fix yourself, unable to remedy your greatest problems, namely your, your death in sin and trespasses. If you're a Christian, at one point in time, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and you recognized your state and sought Jesus as the remedy, and you cried out to him for mercy. At some point, if you're here and you're a Christian, you look to Christ and cast yourself on him for mercy and you found it. And brother or sister, if that's you, like these two blind men, at that time when you cried out to Christ, you received mercy. You weren't turned away. You weren't passed by. The Lord Jesus heard your cry and answered from the depths of his limitless mercy. He shows mercy to those who cry out in need. And our hope is the mercy of God that's been shown to us in the Son of David. And so, believer, maybe you just need to be encouraged again today, as I have been this week, that, that Christ is merciful. He's merciful from, from start to finish. That's, that's his nature. That's who he is. Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Do you know the answer to that psalm rhetorical question? The answer is no one could stand. If, if the Lord marked our sins, 
No one could stand. That, that's the point. That's, that's the starting point of the Christian life. Recognizing that I can't stand, but, but crying out. Psalm 86, 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's, that's our God. Merciful and gracious. Showing mercy. And so, believer, in the person of Christ, we have the radiance of the glory of God, the, the exact imprint of the divine nature. To see Christ in the pages of Matthew's gospel is to see God fully revealed. And here, specifically, in these verses, we see mercy. And so be encouraged at the nature and character of your Lord. But some of you here today, this is not your story. You're, you're the blind man at the beginning of the story, and you've not yet cried out for mercy. And if you're here, you've not cried out for mercy. I don't know why you haven't. Maybe you doubt that Christ is able to provide for you. Maybe it's all made up. Maybe it's all a hoax. This Jesus, you come here to, to, to appease your parents, or, or you're here for some other reason. Maybe you doubt that Christ has truly come and revealed God to us and, and died on the cross and raised from the dead. Maybe that's why you haven't cried out for mercy. Or maybe you doubt that there's enough mercy in Christ for you. Maybe you know the depths of, of your depravity. Maybe you know your evil hearts. Maybe you, you know what you've done and you think, Jesus does not have mercy for someone like me. Maybe that's why you haven't cried out. Or, or maybe you're just apathetic. You've never given this issue the attention that it deserves. Maybe you're distracted in, the, in this age of constant distraction. I don't know why you have not cried out for mercy, but whatever the reason, for some of you here today, this is not your story. And for you, the way that, that you apply this passage, the way that, that you, you appropriate the, the message of God to you this morning, through this sermon, through this passage, the way you do that is to join the two blind beggars in crying out for mercy. The application point for you is to cry out for mercy, not because you're physically blind, but because you're dead in your sins and trespasses. Because the reality, whether you realize this or not, the reality is that you are separated from God in need of salvation. The reality is your sins are many, and you know that as well as anybody. You can pretend and act like it's, it's not, but your heart is sinful, and your sins are many. And your sins have separated you from the God who created you to, to be in relationship with Him and to know Him and love Him, to find full joy in fellowship with Him. And friend, this morning, though your sins are many, the good news of the merciful Savior is that His mercy is more. It's more. Pile up your sins. Write them down if that would be helpful. But I don't care how long your list is, His mercy is more. That is who the Messiah is. Friend, Jesus, the one with all authority and all power, laid down his life in order to guarantee beyond a shadow of a doubt that anyone who would cry out to him for mercy would never be turned away. That's the gospel. It's, it's too good to be true. But it is, it's true. Jesus died so that it would be true. And he rose again so that it would be true. And he made promises and secured salvation so that you knowing your sin and your need, would cry out for mercy and find it abundant. And so I want to close with the words of a late 18th century Methodist commentator. He says this, bear with the language. He says, Dear reader, whosoever thou art, act
act in behalf of thy soul as these blind men did in behalf of their sight. Act in behalf of thy soul as these blind men did in behalf of thy sight, and thy salvation is sure. Now listen to what he says. Apply to the son of David. Lose not a moment. He is passing by, and thou art passing into eternity, and probably will never have a more favorable opportunity than now. Apply to the Son of David. Lose not a moment. The Savior is passing by, and, and thou art passing into eternity, and probably will never have a more favorable opportunity than now. You're sitting here in this sanctuary. You're hearing the message of the merciful Savior who, who died and suffered so that you could be forgiven of your sins. And the call for you is simply to cry out. Apply to the Son of David. Lose not a moment. And that's how I would counsel you, friend. Turn to Christ. Because he's a merciful Savior. And here's the thing. No matter who you are, no matter what group you're in, whether you've been following Christ for decades, for only a day, whether you're not yet following Christ, whatever your state, the good news is that the Lord Jesus is not only a mighty Savior, but is merciful, kind, and gracious to a degree that our minds cannot conceive. We need his mercy when we first begin our Christian course, poor trembling penitents, babes in grace. We need his grace afterwards as we travel along the narrow way, often erring, often stumbling, and often cast down. We shall need it in the evening of our days when we go down the valley of the shadow of death. Let us then grasp the mercy of Christ firmly now and keep it daily before our minds. We shall never know till we wake up in the next world how much we are indebted to it. Let's pray as we close.